thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk. It's a pleasure to have you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, and uh, I just want to get to learn more about you. You're a close friend of the Flute Centers, and we see you all the time, too. So it's nice to kind of get you here and um, kind of chat about everything about your life and everything that's going on. Uh, I wanted to kind of start from the beginning. Um, can you share more about growing up and uh, kind of your exposure to the arts and, and music and how you decided to get on the path you were on, which was studying art history at Yale? That's a long topic. I know. I know. <laughs> a lot. That's a big, a big question. question. Yeah. Well, I started flute in the fourth grade simply because the band director came around and said, if you play an instrument, you can get out of class for an hour a week to be in the band. Uh -huh. <laughs> and that was sufficient motivation because I was bored. Um, so, and I couldn't decide between the flute and the clarinet. And then the band director, Mr. Samuel Zittman, who is alive and 95 years old, living in New Jersey, um, we're Facebook friends. Great. He, um, he did like this, little, 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 little flute. <laughs> and, and that was it. <laughs> um, but I couldn't open the case for the first, you know, we had one of these, it was like a luggage lock case. Yeah. And he said, well, if you can't open the case, you're certainly not going to be able to play. But I fooled him. <laughs> I took it out and I immediately played a note and I came back the next day and I had three notes and it was completely natural. Yeah. So you just took to it. Um, and I feel that's like that's something that um, you've also been kind of vocal and passionate about is the best parts of teaching for you is helping your students discover their unique set of strengths and their abilities and um, finding what they do that they love um, and what makes them happiest. So did you have a mentor like that growing up that did that for you? Well, I... Um... I was always very, very divided uh, between doing flute and doing something else. Um, I was a strong academic student. Um, and uh, although I, I loved going to music festivals and uh, I just, I always had a love-hate relationship with performing. I performed extremely well and I won competitions, but the anxiety wow. was overwhelming for me. And I tried to quit several times because of that, actually, as late as senior year in high school. Wow, really? Yes. Um, to the point where I won a competition, I was supposed to play a concerto with an orchestra, and I had my father call and cancel. So, you know, I understand people's anxiety, performance anxiety. Sure. And it was something I had to to work through. So I, I decided not to go to conservatory. I didn't even apply to conservatories. I applied just to colleges. And um, and I figured while I was at college, I might as well study something. I was doing the flute pretty intensively, but mm -hmm. I figured I'd study something else. So I, you know, I like pictures. I like, I, I cannot paint. I cannot draw. I have absolutely. Uh, no, no skills that way, but I have a, a strong visual sense and it was very appealing to me as a way to study art in context, in a social context, mm -hmm. which also kind of fed into, to my music. For sure. Of course. Yeah. So you ever... And I always tied it in whenever I was studying, I would always write a paper and I even did a senior um, exhibit 
at I was a, a senior project at the Yale Art Gallery uh, called um, Theater Life in Paris, 1880 to 1900, featuring lithographed covers that were in the collection of the Yale Art Gallery. And um, even then I was always uh, interested in kind of inter uh, multidisciplinary yeah. kind of things. So I said, well, why are we just looking at the covers? We should hear the music. And the director of the art gallery said, no, we don't do that. Hmm. We don't do that. And I said, I think we should do that. And I found a cabaret singer who was able to sing and record these things. And I had it playing in the art in the art gallery. And I did some, I did some walks and talks and performances, and it was really fun. So did you so, have kind of like a change of heart at some point where you wanted to um recommit yourself or try again with with performing? I mean, you ultimately got some scholarships and uh, of fellowships to go to Paris and study. Um, right. I was, I have to say, I never fully quit. So senior year in high school, then I went to college and I was performing senior year in college. I played like 50 concerts. I was playing in every possible ensemble. So I was, um, the anxiety, was it better? Somewhat better, but it was still there. And I went to study with Jean-Pierre Rampal in Nice I studied with him after my junior, after my senior year in high school. And um, it was just incredible. And we saw each other at Emmanuel Paud's recital at the 92nd Street Y last week. And I was sitting in the second row and it was just just amazing. And it reminded me of the first time I heard Jean-Pierre Rampal in concert at Avery Fisher Hall. Um, I think I was in the eighth grade and I was saying, wow, this is unbelievable. Yeah. So it was that kind of awe sure. that I felt. Uh, um, can you talk a little but, bit more about your time with Ron Paul? Right. But, but the interesting thing is after that trip to Nice to study with him, I met my parents in Italy and that's where I fell in love with Italian Renaissance art. And then when I went to college, I decided to combine the two. Great. So that was kind of a pivotal moment. Um, so when you asked if I had a mentor, I studied with the wonderful Francis Blaisdell yep. for many, many years in high school, all through high school. And, um, you know, she was a great inspiration and as especially as a female performer. Mm -hmm. Um and she was the one, I, I, she had moved to California right after I graduated from high school. And I guess it was after my first year in college, I was in L, I was in San Francisco where she, she lived and we met and um, she said to me, promise me, you will not get married and, and have a family until you have an established career. Don't do that. Wow. <laughs> I did it and it was a mistake. Yes. <laughs> So right, some uh, honest feedback from Francis. Well, yeah, I took that to heart. And I said to myself, well, I will not get married. I want to get married before I'm 35. So I got married when I was 34 years and 51 weeks old. <laughs> you it right down to the wire. <laughs> yeah. And do you kind of uh, so, uh, commiserate with the other uh, like colleagues and, and other 
um, friends that you play with. I mean, I know you had a flute trio at some point with Carol Winsense and Laura Gilbert and you called yourselves the flute moms, right? So uh, do you guys kind of commiserate about that balance between career and family? I think we, the three of us all kind of worked it out very nicely. Um, now we could be the three flute grandmas almost, <laughs> although no one's, no one's children of, you know, our kids were three and four when we did the flute moms. Yep. So it's great to look back on those photos. It just, you know, it's really a hoot, but um, no, I think the decisions I made in my life professionally um, allowed me to have that a good balance um, before I was married. And, and had children, I was on the road all the time. Yeah. When I met my husband, I was traveling something like 275 days a year. Wow. Um, that's a lot. And that's, it's, you cannot have a relationship and you cannot have a family. Yeah, yeah. And also it got old. Right, I feel like you, did you feel like you kind of got it out of your not out of your system, but you, you enjoyed it and you, you, uh, took advantage of it and then you were ready to maybe move on to a new phase of your life. Yes. And yeah. that's where teaching kind of kind of came built in. up. Yeah. Um, and I started a chamber music festival in Cooperstown, New York in 1999. We're coming up on our 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Thank you. So that's kind of my second child. Right. One one real child and this is my you know this is my yeah, second well, let's talk about cooperstown a little bit and like what it takes to uh, make that become a reality and the planning behind it oh it's kind of crazy yeah. you know it was um i had turned down i had been offered a job university of michigan it was a full professor tenured position which amy porter subsequently took and when you were offered something like that, it makes you think, you know, if I don't want this, what do I want? Hmm. So uh, at that time, I had a husband and a child who was about to enter kindergarten in New York City. And um, my husband and I had our both elderly parents, all of our elderly parents living in New York. And it really didn't make sense to pick yeah. up and move to Michigan. So I said, well, if I, you know, what do, what, what would I like to do instead? And that's when I decided that I wanted to create something, you know, that I had some ownership of. Because I found as a flutist, I'd be invited to chamber music festivals, but you always play the first piece on the program. Occasionally you get the end of the first half but you you know you you never it when you're dealing with string and piano chamber music and here i am 25 years later i don't sometimes i don't most of the time i don't even program myself there's such good stuff to, <laughs> to program um so it put the flute in perspective but it allowed me um a path that was very creative and i love to come up with ideas, programming ideas and um, themes. Yeah. And uh, is there anything that's, you know, speaking of MSM, um, anything that surprises you anymore, having um, taught there for decades now about new incoming students or 
anything that you notice the the changes in each generation as they come through um or do you feel like it's uh yeah just kind of curious your take on on the new wave of young flute players oh i think the 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 new people coming in are just amazing and um i choose a certain kind of student it's hard to to assess because we're we're basing our judgment on a pre-screen audition and a 15 minute live audition but after doing this for so many years i have a sense of the kind of student that with whom i work really well um and that is um a self-starter someone who is um is not waiting for me to say do this 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 and this mm-hmm. it's someone uh who enjoys brainstorming is create sort of enjoys exploring repertoire um has a mind of their own um i don't obviously i don't like somebody who's super resistant to my ideas but i always say you know are you if they're doing something very differently I try not to have a my way or the highway approach. Mm-hmm. I prefer to say, is this a choice or is this kind of autopilot or is this something you just heard and copied? And if someone feels very strongly that it's a musical choice, I'll say, convince me. Right. And if I'm convinced, I say, go with it. You know, so I, I enjoy that kind of exchange. I don't like um, having... I always say to my students, I'll meet you 50-50, meet me halfway. Yeah. You, know, was, you bring your energy and you bring your passion and I will meet that. Right. And was the recruitment process a little bit difficult during COVID and making sure you could find the right fit when a lot of stuff was not in person? Um, was that a, a little bit of an extra challenge? What happened during when we went uh, to auditions uh, online I mean, ver- so, uh, with video recorded auditions, not live, but mm-hmm. video, all video recorded, is that it became extremely difficult to assess professionally recorded mm-hmm. auditions. The auditions that people did in their bedroom, in their kitchen, in their bathroom, they were kind of honest. You could sort of tell yeah. how the person played. But sometimes when people would go into a studio, first of all, many times they had they were at too much of a distance. So you really couldn't tell, was it really this person playing? Because the fingers were so far away, you couldn't see the sinking. Mm. Also, there was a lot of reverb on many of these recordings. So as a result, many of the professionally recorded auditions ended up sounding the same. Interesting. And when we, the faculty came together, we said, here are five auditions and we really can't distinguish one from the other. So what we did is we actually invited the people who were being seriously considered for admission to do a live Zoom, a quick live Zoom, so we could actually hear them play. Yeah, yeah. And was that- It it, it, it totally changed everything. Wow, Yeah. yeah talk a little bit more about uh, a newer class too that you launched um, more recently beyond the excerpts and why you felt like this was an important thing to add into uh, the curriculum for every flutist and, and every musician. 
or every woodwind player, we basically, um, since we couldn't during the pandemic have large ensembles to speak of, uh, we created this um, module that's called Beyond the Excerpt. And we have uh, Michael Parloff teaches the flute version of it. Uh, and we have other members of the Metropolitan Opera and the New York Phil teaching the other sections. And it focuses uh, each session on one or two main excerpts, but you you don't just learn the little snippet, you learn the entire work and the context. And you need to write a, a little, you know, a few paragraphs about which performance appealed to you and why. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it it just basically illuminates um, the experience from just this learning and practicing these excerpts kind of um, in a compulsive way <laughs> and, and, and allowing people to kind of understand the context a bit better. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's funny is that if you kind of Google your name and you read about all your accomplishments and, and read more about yourself online, um, there's lots of things that come up and we can kind of do a full circle now back to to France, uh, but there's a lot of things that come up about you being kind of the paragon of the French school of playing, um, just your fluency, the elegance on the flute. Um, and I know you kind of consider yourself a little bit of a Francophile, right? So do you, mm -hmm. do you feel that way? And do you feel like your kind of appreciation for um, just the arts in general too and your background with that has uh, kind of made you lean in that direction? Yeah, I'm definitely a Francophile. And actually my daughter lives in Paris. Oh, lovely. Living in Paris, July, 2019. And she speaks French much better than I ever did or ever will. So um, I'm back and forth quite a lot, of course, to visit her. Uh, so I definitely feel a very strong attachment to, Fran to France and to French culture and French food. Yeah. And um, yeah, and it was it was a remarkable ex remarkable experience. It was such a long time ago, but mm -hmm. it's great that I can kind of go back and, and see friends. And, yeah. um, What's and one connect. one big uh, memory either with Ron Paul or just being in France that um, you really hold near and dear? Oh, there are so many. Oh my goodness, you know, but some are terrifying. Like what? Um, like the, um, you know, the concours, you know, when people yep. say, what is the concours of, of the uh, Paris Conservatory? I would say, talk about someone who had experienced performance anxiety. The day of the concours of the end of the year, the big end of the year competition, um, a month before you were given the imposed piece and this would be le morceau de concours like we have all the french books from morceau de concours yep. and uh it was written and published and available one month out as and then we were given the regular the program as well for everybody played the same thing for the end of the year exam and mine my year it was the second and third movement of the Romberg flute concerto. And the new piece was by Pierre Petit. Um, it was called Quinze, 15, after Rompal's address, 15 Avenue de Mozart. And it had 15 low 
C fortissimo notes, whole notes, you know. Um, and and the, what else did I have to do? Was it, I think it was a Paganini Caprice number 24. Um, yeah, and so heavy lifting there. Yeah. <laughs> and you would walk out into a major hall. Uh, Rampal was turning pages for the pianist. In the balcony was the esteemed jury. Michel de Bost, Maxence Larieux, Peter Lucas Graf. I mean, everybody was there. Wow. And the administrator or functionnaire would come out and they would announce your name and they would say, candidate numero trois, Chessis Linda, 22 ans, dix mois, trois jours. You know, 22 years, 10 months, three days, yeah. étrangère, foreigner, just in case people didn't know. <laughs> and then you would walk on and there wouldn't be applause. And it was a full house. Very strange. Very uncomfortable. And you just had to play. And then it's over. And yeah. then you have to wait until the end of the day to find out if you received a first prize. And if so which position of the first prize, a second prize or nothing. Mm -hmm. If you received a first prize, you're finished with that degree at the conservatoire. And then you go on with your life and you try to, you get a job or whatever. If you get a second prize, you must go back to school for the year to try again. And you had two chances to try for the first prize. Mm -hmm. And if you got nothing, your education was nil. You were finished and it was as if it never happened. Yeah. Just a, a little bit of pressure. <laughs> and so what was that like waiting for the results? Oh, I think I got drunk. <laughs> I think I went to the only thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I just couldn't take it. You know, I had steak tartare or something and a lot of wine and then went back to hear the results. And it was, it was was good I it was, was good right yeah tell everyone what and they published it in the paper yes of course first prize yep and uh what was that feeling like then hearing the good news relief yeah it wasn't elation it was sheer relief so what i mean we talked a little bit and touched on the performance anxiety and playing throughout the years and uh i mean what tips do you have? What things kind of get you through in moments like that, which is probably one of the most, I'm sure, stressful moments of your career? Really, it was. Yeah. Really, when you can flip your head and think about a performance as something you are offering, it's very hard when you're being judged like that. Yeah. And being judged, you know, for auditions. But the mindset should be for auditions, for schools, for example, I'm shopping for a school that's a good fit for me. You know, you're looking for students who are a good fit for your school, but I'm also in a position, a shopping position uh, to find the teacher that's the right fit for me, that's going to be the most supportive for me, that understands my goals and aspirations. And if you can 
also understand that we're looking for people to be great. We're not looking to criticize people. We're looking for talent. Yeah. We want people to play well. And it's a little bit more comforting. <laughs> it is. It yeah. is. We're very happy when someone comes in and plays plays beautifully. It's really exciting. Yeah. To discover a talent. So the advice is really try to just be yourself and communicate. Communicate mm -hmm. your joy of the music. Communicate what you love about the piece you're playing. And if you don't love the piece, figure out how to love the piece. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the hardest things. If you're playing the Mozart concerto again and again and again, how do you find new inspiration? Yeah, that can be hard. And what about, I mean, do you have any... Uh rituals or things that you you know that you like to do or you have to do to kind of get you in that right mindset before a performance? I found that given the nature of traveling and time limitations or whatever, I can't have real rituals because if it's I did- It's a luxury, yeah. Yeah, it's a luxury. But everybody has the time to take a few deep breaths yeah. before walking into- an audition room or walking on stage for performance. Mm -hmm. You know, you could do um, one of the, there's so many counted breathing exercises like, uh, uh, you know, inhale on four beats, hold for seven beats, exhale for eight beats, alternate nostril breathing. I have a whole talk about this, about breathing uh, with a PowerPoint that I do there. Each exercise uh, works a little bit differently for different reasons. And there's just so much. There's so many resources online. Um, I do that. And I also um, blow air. Um, if you can't, many times you can't play right outside the room or right outside the hall, but you want your air to be right, right when you start playing. So I find if you just blow your air, like say I'm doing the Mozart concerto. When I put, put my flute up, my air already is warm. Mm -hmm. You know, my flute is cold. Right. Blow into you. But, but I find that I can get the air moving more quickly. Yeah. I also do buzzing. <laughs> that kind of thing because it focuses my air it helps engage your body getting you ready to be out. yes yeah. yep so they're little tricks yeah um, and um you know and also just the way one walks on stage and walks into a room is so important mm -hmm. tell us a little more about that you walk in, big smile, happy to be here. Yeah. Even if you're not, fake it. <laughs> yes. You know, fake it. Yeah. Um, and I learned that the hard way. I was doing a debut, my debut at Carnegie Hall. I had come back from France and I had won a competition. It was at Wild Recital Hall. And my mother was, she was not a tiger mom at all, but she was very enthusiastic. And she sold the place out <laughs> and it was packed and I was scared. Yeah. And uh, the harpist with whom I played for many years, uh, Sarah Cutler, 
was turning pages with pianists and before I went to sit, smile. And I went, and I walked out like, geez. And people smiled back. Yes. And what you need to remember is whatever you are portraying on your face will be reflected by the audience. Yeah. If you're showing fear and anxiety, you're going to get that back, that right. worried look. But if you're up and happy, immediately you will get a smile from the audience. And that alone, I think, makes Definitely you feel helps. better. Yeah. Um, so the last, last question for you, Linda, is what's on your music stand now? Interesting, you ask. Oh, my music stand's not here. It got taken away. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at new works by women composers. Excellent. Not necessarily new, new for me. Yeah. So I'm looking at um, Amanda Harburg. I have a couple of works on my stand by Amanda Harburg and also Miriam Hyde, an Australian composer uh, early in the 20th century, has a flute sonata, which I borrowed from interlibrary loan and I'm giving oh, that a go. Yeah. And uh, Tanya Leon's Alma. Lovely. So um, looking at women. I love it. And uh, thank you so much again for taking the time out to chat with us. And it was really great. Thanks so much, Katie. All right. Bye, Linda. Bye-bye.